0: Good morning. It's Thursday, November 19th. I'm Duarte Geraldiño,
1: And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them.
0: The largest school system in the country is back to where it was in March, telling parents, it's not safe for your kids to attend school in person anymore. New York City's mayor temporarily shut down the public school system yesterday, saying it was because of a surge in COVID cases. As CBS reports, the move is just the latest in a wave of newly imposed restrictions around the U.S. that are designed to slow the virus's spread.
1: The mayor of New Orleans canceled next year's Mardi Gras parades. This is the first time this has happened in more than 40 years. Governors in Ohio, California, and New Jersey issued new restrictions. They're all limiting how many people can gather indoors ahead of Thanksgiving. And they've also imposed curfews and mask mandates. And a bipartisan group of governors in the Midwest released a video with a simple and urgent message. Mask up, Kentucky. Mask up, Wisconsin. Mask up, Illinois. Mask up, Ohio.
0: Mask up, Indiana. Mask up, Minnesota. Mask up, Michigan. These new restrictions come as the United States averages more than 150,000 new COVID-19 cases per day, according to the COVID Tracking Project. And over the past week, that same data source says upwards of 1,000 people a day died of the virus. Hospitals around the U.S. are running out of beds and resources to treat the nearly 80,000 people who have been admitted because of COVID infections.
1: The Washington Post reports many Republican governors are seeing cases surging in their state and their public health systems on the brink of collapse. And they're starting to introduce tougher restrictions, even if they don't necessarily align with their politics. The governor of North Dakota issued a statewide mask mandate over the weekend. It carries a fine of up to $1,000. West Virginia's governor also tightened his state's mask mandate. And Iowa's governor, Kim Reynolds, who dismissed the idea of requiring masks over the summer, introduced a mask mandate this week. If Iowans don't buy into this, we lose. Businesses will close once again. More schools will be forced to go online. And our health care system will fail. And the cost in human life will be high.
0: You know, the Washington Post's reporting also shows many politicians are still resistant. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem says... If a mask mandate were introduced at the national level, she's not enforcing it in her state. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves says he won't close businesses. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott says he's not locking down his state again, but he will keep its mask requirement in place. This week, the Trump administration announced it's reducing the number of troops in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Somalia. A full withdrawal is planned by May 2021. This is part of President Trump's pledge to end America's, quote, forever wars. It also falls in line with his America First promise to pull the country out of costly foreign conflicts. So let's zero in on Afghanistan in particular and why senior U.S. military officials and some people who were there are just not happy about Washington's plan to withdraw troops after 19 years.
1: U.S. troops have been in the country since 2001. Around 4,500 American soldiers are still there. Former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster told the PBS NewsHour that pulling out the last U.S. troops might embolden the Taliban and lead to more violence and also reduce freedoms for Afghan people.
0: To your point, Shamita, The start of peace talks between the Afghan government and the Taliban didn't slow the fighting. The U.S. military command in Afghanistan says between July and September of 2020, Taliban initiated violent attacks increased by 50 percent compared to a year earlier. In a recent report, the U.N. called Afghanistan one of the deadliest places in the world to be a civilian right now. And yet, this is the only reality many young Afghans have known.
1: The L.A. Times spoke to young people who are living in Afghanistan today, people who are in their early 20s who grew up with an American military presence there. Safiullah Sangari joined the Taliban four years ago after U.S. airstrikes turned his native village into rubble. And he tells the L.A. Times, as far as he and the Taliban are concerned, America's exit from the war is their victory. But many of the young Afghans who spoke to the paper said they're worried about what will happen if the Taliban returns to power and how it's going to affect their lives. Hafizeh Farouk is 19 years old. She's the director of an elementary school in Kandahar's city center. The majority of the students are girls who come from conservative families. And she tells the paper she fears that the return of the Taliban might mean women will be forced out of public life and back behind closed doors.
0: Did you know a lot of U.S. presidents have not left behind many records? They're supposed to, according to the Presidential Records Act. But as Jill Lepore writes for The New Yorker, there's a long history of presidents skirting that rule.
1: Yeah, Lapore explains when the country was founded, no one came up with a system for presidents to formally archive their papers. George Washington brought all of his papers home with him to Mount Vernon when he left office. Later on, a historian found them and threw out what he didn't like or find relevant. William Henry Harrison's papers were burned in a fire. And the records belonging to John Tyler and Zachary Taylor were largely destroyed during the Civil War.
0: It wasn't until 1978, after the Watergate revelations, when Richard Nixon insisted on destroying all of his records, that Congress finally passed the Presidential Records Act. As Laporte writes, the law meant presidents can no longer claim their papers as personal property. The act instructed the White House to take every step necessary to preserve records.
1: But what counts as records? Is it emails? Computer records? Notes that are scribbled on a notepad? Many presidents, from Reagan to both of the Bushes to Clinton, they all argued in different ways that certain documents, writings, or correspondence weren't technically presidential recordings, and each one of them tried to protect their predecessors.
0: David Ferriero is an Obama appointee who holds a very unique title, Archivist of the United States. He told The New Yorker, The Presidential Records Act operates as an honor system. And he says he wishes it had teeth, but really, it's all gums.
1: And that leaves Lepore wondering what kind of record-keeping has happened in the Trump White House. She writes, President Trump is famous for his secrecy and for demanding non-disclosure agreements from everyone he works with, which is a practice that he brought with him to Washington. He's also known to tear up notes into tiny little pieces as soon as a meeting has ended— which has reportedly resulted in aides trying to save his paper scraps by taping them back together.
0: To be fair, it's not just Trump's records that can be elusive. Laporte writes Jared Kushner chats with Saudi Prince Mohammed bin Salman via WhatsApp. White House staff routinely use encrypted text apps to leak information to the press. And Ivanka Trump used a personal email account for official work.
1: At noon on January 20th, 2021. Just as President-elect Biden is sworn into office, the National Archives will officially take ownership of whatever documents President Trump decides to leave. One of the oldest known chess openings is called The Queen's Gambit. It's also the name of a new Netflix show that follows the story of a young chess prodigy named Beth Harmon, She makes her way from an orphanage in Kentucky to the world stage. Now, the story is fictional, but chess masters say the play and strategy featured in the show is all real and all accurate.
0: Gary Kasparov is a grandmaster, and he consulted with Netflix on this show. He talks with Slate about what the show got right and why many chess players are giving it high praise. He says, it's everything from the sophistication of the play to the way the players touched their pieces and even their body language.
1: Kasparov helped the show come up with the chess game for the series finale. And he tells Slate it was hard to land on the right game, one that would have enough moves and be complicated enough. He went through 700 possibilities. And ultimately, he picked a pretty obscure game played in 1993 by Patrick Wolfe against Vasily Ivanchuk, Now, the game wasn't perfect, but Kasparov says it gave him all the elements that he wanted. One player pushing the rook forward, the rook trapped in the center, a nerve-wracking finale.
0: I was shaking just watching it. Now, I'm not going to tell you how it ends or who wins the final match, but Kasparov says Patrick Wolf sent him a note after watching the final episode, and he said he recognized that game and couldn't believe Kasparov unearthed it.
1: I can't believe he recognized it. That's so incredible.
0: You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app.
1: We'll talk with you again tomorrow.